0: Well, I don't know. How many of you happen to see on my Facebook page my little post about uh, there are those? Did anybody of you guys happen to do that? Uh, if you have an opportunity, I, you know, last week I was telling you as we were looking at what we saw in Chapter 6 um, from the homework last week about the, the um, um, hypothetical section in verses four to eight of chapter six they who and those who right um, well I had I told you there was it made me think about a little song about uh, a Disney movie uh, that was sung and I posted it on my Facebook page for those of you who are interested it's just cute it's fun. And it really does just kind of make you, I think what it'll do for you is it'll help you every time you come across that in the future, you'll think about that. And it and it's sometimes those little triggers like that that help you just to remember and retain something, for me at least. So um, you might want to do that. All right. Um, our, we want to do today is do a quick review of what we covered last week in Hebrews because it was such a challenging passage and you've had now all week to ponder on this, right? To really meditate about what we covered last week and maybe had opportunity then to also look through carefully at my chart. Did you notice when I sent you my chart notes, did you notice how I broke down um, how to handle a difficult passage and I broke down some of the steps that I used in this particular passage. Did you notice that? Anytime you can't, you have a, a difficult passage, the use of our inductive Bible study tools, the skills that we have, are so beneficial if you will just make the effort to do it. And I, I know it's very, very time-consuming, Um, maybe more than most of you have the time to do, but it is so worth it if you can. Um, What I did was we started, and we want to start again today in the same place, just by review, and that is remember those inductive rules. Tell me some of the inductive rules that you know are absolutes and are important. Okay. Context rules. I'm just going to put that up there and not going to state them, but you guys can put them on yours. Uh, context rules for interpretation. What else? Scripture, Scripture never contradicts itself. Sometimes we get tricked into thinking it is, right? Because we go in and we drop in, we see a verse, we read it, and we're like, wait a minute, that that doesn't make sense. Why would God do that? That doesn't seem like it fits other places, other things that I've read, right? So, in chapter six of Hebrews, we have a verse that's like that: that you drop in, you read this, and just on the surface of reading it, it makes you feel uncomfortable because the way that you perceive it in our English thinking minds, because we are Gentiles and we think in the English language, and because of the translation from Hebrew or from Greek rather into English. It is very easy to just read it and say, I think it's mean, it looks to me like it's meaning this. And all of a sudden you get this gut-wrenching knot in your stomach that says, no, wait a minute, that's, that makes me uncomfortable because that it doesn't seem right. So one of them is you've got to understand that when you hit an obscure passage, you want to make sure that you remember that Scripture does not contradict Scripture, that's just a basic one of those basic rules that you want to keep in mind, okay? What might be another thing that would be important? Violate, violate there you go. Never violate your known doctrines. Now, one of the interesting things I had a conversation with one of my other students this week who said, "Well, you do know, Katie, that assurance of salvation is not a known doctrine to everyone." <laughs> <laughs> I went, "Okay, yes, I do know that, but what I when I mean when I make the statement never violate your known doctrines is the doctrines that Precept Ministries has established and they have a list of them for you to go and look at and read they tell you what they believe is true about the, the word of God that it's inerrant that there are doctrines that there are certain doctrines that are absolute they list those absolute doctrines about who is God who is man what is sin what is salvation they list them for you so you know when I say never violate your known doctrines that's what I'm talking about But to add on top of that, my church here, where we are, you know, observing this class today, my church absolutely stands on assurance of salvation. Once saved, always saved. So, knowing, you know, that is an essential in doing inductive Bible study. How is it beneficial for you and I to start in a place where we say, look, you don't violate your known doctrines and scripture does not contradict scripture? How does that help you? There you go. If your interpretation, if that gut-wrenching knot gets in your stomach because you're looking at that and you're going, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't line up with my known doctrine, and it doesn't seem to line up with other scriptures that I know about, then what should you be doing concerning that verse which is bothering you? Go back to scripture. Go back to scripture and restudy. You need to go back and reevaluate the whole passage, right? To try to say, okay, where am I going wrong with the way i'm looking at this particular passage what might i do to to have a better interpretation so that i can walk away from it going oh, okay now i see what i I'm, was missing what's the author's purpose for writing go back okay and of those. yeah what's the author's
1: purpose for writing what about the audience the mm-hmm. right
0: There you go. Okay, so and you call that what? Context, your immediate context. You need to go back to the basics of saying, okay, then what is my immediate context? So when I sent you my list of things, this is what I I actually did for you. I said, number one, immediate context observation. So that's where we started. We looked at some keywords and some contrasts. Uh, statements and so forth. In that immediate text, we also did something else, which was in number two, we wanted to look at the literary qualities that we were looking at, right? What did you notice in verses four to eight? How did it compare to the verses before it and after it? Was there a literary change? Yeah, there were pronoun changes. Now, if you weren't paying close attention, you would miss that. However, the great thing is Precept Ministries put that in your homework. Some of you I've had conversations with, and we all laugh about it now. They're going, yeah, I saw that question. I didn't know what she was Trying to, well, I didn't know what point she was trying to make. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. Well, this is it. The point is, literary flow and the pronoun change in this gave us a very big clue about what was going on in verses four to eight. So when you see a switch from we and us in one to three, and then it picks back up, we and us in verse um, nine on, what then was going on in four to eight was they and those. So what does that tell you about they and those? It's a different people group, and and are they clearly identified? Are there other passages in Scripture where we see stories told where they're not clearly identified? Give me some, give me, what do you call those kinds of stories? Generally, we call them parables. Now, this is not a parable in that there's not a specific father and two sons and a certain event is laid out for us but rather it is a, a hypothetical though of the they and those and it speaks about them in this kind of detached kind of uh conversation where he's saying those people do this or they will do that right but then it says in verse nine what but concerning you brethren right I want to... Let's go back and look at that together. Hold on. Find my observation worksheet. Open up with me, if you will, to chapter 6, and look in verse 9. So when he makes the switch from 4 to 8 of the those who fall away and put Christ to open shame, then in 9 he opens it back... He, he comes back to the we and the us pronouns, and he says, But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning You. And things that do what? Accompany salvation. So he's saying about them, I am, I am talking to you with a confidence that I'm believing that you are saved. That you have salvation. And that you will not do as those have who are not demonstrating things that accompany salvation. And that they, those who are not doing that are going to suffer in a certain way. Is there, a, is there anything in this that shows us a warning yeah, what does it tell us? What is the warning in 7 and 8? That there's, there's, a, there's some kind of um, action that's going to take place. It says, for ground that drinks in the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it, has, it is also stilled, receives a blessing from God. So it's talking about the land that receives rain. Who's the land in this pictorial picture? us, the church, right? And when the rain falls on us, the church, and we bear fruit that's useful, right, vegetation that's useful, then we receive what? Blessing from God, right? Now, there's a subject matter you could actually run off into another little uh, sideline Bible study. What, what would those blessings be in your mind? If, if God rains on you, his good word and all these things that he has mentioned in verses 4 and 5 and 6 and you produce veg- vegetation which is useful what is the blessing that god might give you what might be that subject matter okay assurance and reward two subjects come up from that as a possibility of interpretation of that blessing that blessing could be assurance it could be reward for doing well, okay, and it could just be simply a, joy, a, a, a situation of joy in your heart, a contentment, which I think falls under what Carol said, which is assurance. Okay, but uh, yes. So you can expand. Can you see how this can actually take you into yet another Bible study if you wanted, correct? Then the second one is says, but if it yields thorns and thistles. Now, who is the rain falling on again? believers, if that rain falls upon the believers and it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless. And it's close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. Now, what is the it that's being burned? The works. The works that were produced, which are thorns and thistles. Now, So we looked, at this point, we've looked at the immediate context, we've also identified the literary change in style. So we've seen that the they and the those, and we've seen the difference in what's going on here. His expectation of those who are going to um, actually bear good fruit, he says, but of you I believe better things, better things that are associated with salvation. The others, he's saying, in other words, contrast, if you don't, it, do, it doesn't look like the things that you're doing are associated with salvation. Now, it doesn't mean they're not saved. It just means that what they're producing is thorns and thistles, and it's not a good thing. All right, so that's the number two point I did with you. Then I did number three. Uh, the next point on my list that I gave you last week was what follows the different, difficult passage. So as Diane brought out, she says it's important for you to see the context in which the statement is is made, right? So we don't only look at the immediate um, passage itself, but we need to look at what was before and what is after also to see this complete flow, correct? So when I started last week, before we even got into the immediate uh, portion of it, I did it a complete contextual setting for you by taking you through the book's major theme, the author's purpose, and every chapter's flow of thought, correct? You know, sometimes you guys wonder why I keep repeating, repeating, but this is why, because context is everything. It rules for your interpretation. So you have to go back and look to see what is the flow of thought thus far, what has been the author's purpose, what's his agenda, where is he going, so that when he, you hit this difficult passage, this thing that doesn't make sense to you, you begin to say, okay, now wait a minute, so how does how does this statement accomplish what he's been trying to say all along, right? So what has he been saying all along up through to chapter six? There is something better. Better than what? Okay, better than, right? Okay. Everyone following? Better than And actually, what is the major contrast on the book on the whole? Who is, what are the two things he's comparing? Old covenant, new covenant, the law, and then the new covenant in Christ Jesus. So if you look at the flow of thought in that, that that's what he's ultimately been doing all along and he's consistently doing. When you hit chapter six, what you're saying is that there's a comparison between the old and the new, but here he has made a pause, has he not? Because at the close of chapter 5, he, he has to make this statement to them. Let's go back and look at it. Um, in verse 11 of chapter 5, we see the beginning of this rebuke passages. Starting in chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 11, it runs most of the way through Hebrews 6, at least all the way through uh, verse 8. And he says in here, concerning him, Melchizedek, who is just mentioned as being better, Jesus' priesthood is better than the priesthood of Melchizedek, or no, sorry, is like the the priesthood of Melchizedek and better than the priesthood of the Levitical uh, system. And he says, concerning this Melchizedek, he wants to give them more insight. But then he says, but... It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So, what is he rebuking them about when you go through the rest of those few verses? What is it that he's telling them they're not doing or or that they need to do? They need to mature because what have they apparently stopped doing? They stopped learning. Now, I tell you what, would you say this is a pertinent message to us, the church, today, as well as to them? Although we know that there's a very specific address of a problem that they are having that we won't have because it pertains literally to the law of going back to the old system of sacrifices at the temple. And we're going to get into that more as we keep moving forward. But there is an application for you and I as well. Although we don't struggle with the issue of going back to the temple, what might we struggle with? Yeah. Getting it up, have you ever known somebody to get to a certain point and say, well, I've grown, I know enough now, I'm just going to sit back, kick my feet up. Have you ever, have you ever been guilty of saying that same thing? You know, I just need a break. I just need to rest on my laurels for a while and and just enjoy my life instead of studying all the time because that just takes so much of my time. Don't we do that sometimes? We do. All of us do. I guarantee you, we've all done that at some point. I too, <laughs> there have been moments of temptation where I have thought, I just need a break, right? But or you God. Even say it. It just happens. It, or it just happens. So yeah. That's true too. But you know, there are people who will just simply opt out and stay home. And you know what's very interesting to me? How, how many of you have ever, if you're willing to confess, done that? What has actually happened during the time of your rest? Did you actually get a whole lot done and felt really refreshed? No. (laughs) You actually, at the end of it, you think, man, I just wasted four months or three months or however long you did that for. Um, At the end of it, you find out that you actually didn't have any more time in your life when you weren't doing the Bible study as you did when you were. It's just you were spending your time doing different things but you really didn't get that much more. Your house isn't any more clean. Your closets aren't any more organized. Your children's activities are no more finished and done because now new ones have come and piled on top. Your work isn't less stressful. Your your marriage is not less work, right? All these things remain no matter how long you stay away from God's word for, quote, your break to kick back and relax and enjoy your life. Then when you we're doing it. As a matter of fact, I would challenge anyone to deny that you actually feel more refreshed and more productive when you are in God's Word and actually are still trying to handle and manage all the rest of it. I, I feel like when I get done with my homework, I've really accomplished something that was worth my time. And so in this particular rebuke, he's saying it's hard to explain because you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. So is he speaking to brand new babies who have not had an opportunity of growing up? No, he's actually speaking to those who you have had plenty of time to mature in your faith. Now, I would say this is actually a challenge to some of the older believers more, even more so than to the babies. Not to say that the babies shouldn't be encouraged to get on board and dig right in, but... I think he's actually speaking to those who have had the time to grow in their faith, but haven't, and they've had a million excuses why they don't study the Word of God, why they don't press into their maturing of their faith. Now, it's not just Bible study for maturity, so don't get me wrong, but, but he is speaking of that as well. So he says, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. Now, this is very clearly speaking here of the Word of God itself. And he says, "But you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to having, um, not accustomed to the word of righteousness. For he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil." Okay. So the issue here is he's talking about believers who have been walking with the Lord for an extensive period of time, who have not grown up, have not matured, and they're not even able to engage in mature conversations on deeper, more challenging subjects because they never disciplined them on even just the basic things. They just stayed in the real rudimentary things, those elementary things, and they've just been going, hey, I'm saved, I'm good. Right? But they never challenge themselves to grow up. Now, why is it an important thing to grow up? What, is, what are these believers in danger of? What's going on that, that this author is so concerned? Okay, falling back and getting involved possibly in sin. That's right, and you know what's very interesting to me. Sometimes evil is not evil as the world sees it. Sometimes evil is the more subtle things too. It's it's just doing your own thing rather than doing what God has challenged us to do to grow up in our maturity. Okay, so in this process, we we're going to hold fast to inductive rules, never violating known doctrines. Um, understand that the word does not contradict itself. Don't. Don't use obscure obscure passages to establish your doctrines. Um, Let the immediate text rule for interpretation, so you have to kind of go through and get get that flow of thought. Look before, look after. What is the issue? What was going on in in chapter 5? He's rebuking them because they're not growing up. They're not doing what they should be. They're not being serious about their faith walk. So when you hit then chapter 6 and you see this very strange hypothetical from 4 to 8, he is land-blasting, isn't he? I mean, he just comes down hard on them, and it is a stern rebuke and a warning. And so um, when you look at that from that perspective, then you start to say, oh, so he's not talking about unbelievers that are going to be, their land is going to be burned. So that burning obviously is not talking about um, hell, the kind of burning that hell, the imagery of hell brings up, because why Why else? What's another doctrine we're not going to violate? Assurance of salvation. Did you find it interesting, As which we worked on this week, what follows this stern warning of burning of land? What follows it? Assurance, the assurance of your salvation. He calls it the hope, right? The hope which you have. So... I find it very interesting that I never noticed that before. It never dawned on me that he actually follows that which looks like he's saying you can lose your salvation, and he follows it with a huge teaching on assurance of your salvation telling you that it is a sure hope. So that was what we did in our homework this week. Now, let me finish just a few more things on this. What follows that difficult passage is assurance of salvation. Then the next thing I looked at was the flow of thought in that immediate text. So I went back and I said, okay, let me just see the flow of thought here. Now that I kind of know where I'm at, I've got my boundaries Set and I kind of know this the flow of things here and what this author's purpose is let me just identify clearly his flow of thought here so instead of being caught up in all the details you are going to pull back about six feet or maybe 12 feet and you're going to say what's what is he saying progressively through this and so we went through last week and it was your very first assignment for this week's homework by the way so I actually helped out a lot didn't I I kind of gave you the answers, but um, I didn't mean to. <laughs> I didn't know it was going to be in the next week's work. But we were we did paragraph titles. So, what is paragraph one in verses one to three? What was your paragraph title? This was your first week's first homework assignment for this week's homework. Pardon? Press on That's right. Press on to maturity. And if you didn't do it in your outline, I would go ahead and put those those pronouns in there you press on to maturity so you understand that he's get, he is speaking very specifically about this audience you press on to maturity okay and then verses four to six is the next one what does he say there warning. it's a warning and who and who is the pronoun they and those, they and those. okay so those who do what those who fall away what what's what are they doing when they do that when they fall away they're, crucifying. they're cru- crucifying and then and then doing what and putting him to shame so specifically i think the 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 most declarative is that they're putting him to shame right the open shame crucifying him again is a little more vague for, in our english i mean if you had you would have to kind of explain that probably a little bit but either way is a good title Putting him to open shame is how I put it. Because in, in actuality, crucifying him and putting him, back to, and putting him to public shame, in this case, how is it public? What, is, what, is, what are these people in danger of doing? They're rejecting his life. They are essentially rejecting Christ. Okay. And by doing what? By going back to the law. And so publicly, what are they doing? Yeah, they're showing up at the temple, and in the eyes of the Jewish community, the unbelieving community, who are still in the Jewish system, they are going there, and as, you know, it'd be like uh, like we talk about sometimes when we do our covenant study, it's like you're wearing a crown on your head or a jacket on your back. Have you ever seen jackets with, with identifying markers you belong to a certain club or whatever? Well, my red jacket says, I belong to Jesus Christ right? I've put my faith on Jesus Christ as my Savior. He is my sacrifice and and my uh, assurance of salvation. And I'm wearing that red jacket that has the name of Christ on it, and I'm walking into the temple, and I'm going to perform a sacrifice of a lamb. Would that put him to public shame? Okay, so that's kind of the imagery that's going on here. This is what these particular believers are in danger of doing and that this author is so uh, intent and um, uh, just serious there's just a serious form of rebuke that's going on in here that they cannot do that okay so that is in um, uh, four to six then seven and eight again is the those hypothetical people those who fall away what are they like Thorns and thistles. They're like ground that produces thorns and thistles or like worthless ground. Either one, right? However you want to, whichever words you want to pull out. The, that's the, the flow of thought there. Nine to 12, what did you see? What changes?
1: <laughs>
0: I'm sorry, I can't, you guys are, oh. those, say it again. He goes back to the beloved and the those and the we and the us, right? So he makes that pronoun change. Now, it's no longer hypothetical. He certainly makes a, a change on, on his attitude about them. He's saying, but, I, but I'm confident concerning you of what? Better things and that things that will accompany salvation. So how did you title those verses 9 to 12? What is the word of exhortation he gives them? to be diligent. And in diligence to do what then? Very good, to show those things which will accompany salvation. Okay, so this flow of thought is really nice, isn't it, so far? 13 to 15 now, you. what does he tell you to do? To be patient, because why? That's right, his promises are sure. And then, then in 16 to 20, one more exhortation, what are you to do? Take hold of the hope that has been set before us. Okay. So now we have that flow of thought. So that's what I did in the progressive pieces of doing the inductive process of trying to tear this all down. I went back then, and my sixth point was to look again at the author's purpose in the book, which is what? What is his purpose in writing? Exhortation. To exhort believers in their faith walk, right? And then we see in um, the, the number seven, I went to a word study and some immediate text definitions. So I did go in and look at some word studies to see if that would help me to, um, you know, just highlight or broaden my understanding of some of the things that he was saying. One of the words that you should have looked up would be what? Did you guys do any word studies in that section? Oh, good. Okay, I'll wait for you. Go ahead and look for your stuff. Hope is a word, and that's this week, in our homework this week. That's it. That's following it. But what did you look at in the warning qualities in those verses 4 to 8? Were there any key words that you looked up to help you? Un- because what we're trying to do, and what we're talking about right now is... Uh, Seeking to interpret a difficult passage. Well, the difficult passage is verses 4 to 8. Within 4 to 8, were there any words that you did word studies on? Okay, partakers. That would be a really good one. What did you learn about the partaker? Okay, so they are actually having engaged or become one in, in effect, right? They are partakers of it. Um, Imagery-wise, is there anything that you could relate that to? There you go. Maybe taking of the communion, the idea of partaking of the Lord's Supper. When you eat of it, what happens when you eat of it? It becomes what? Part of you. And two become one in that imagery, right, of partaking of the Lord's Supper. Here he says you become a partaker of what? Of the Holy Spirit. Now that is a real clear statement then that these people that are being spoken of here are what? These are believers. Believers. These are not potential believers. They're not maybe believers that think they are but aren't. They are believers. They are partakers of the Holy Spirit. Two have become one. So we looked in order to then validate that particular point. We looked at some cross-references about what we know about believers. And I took you to, um, let's see if I got my list. I don't have my list here. Oh, I don't have that particular... Oh, yes, I do. Here it is. Whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish but has eternal life. Having believed, you were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise until the day of redemption. Um, uh, That's in Ephesians 1. Um, John 10, they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. Salvation, which is imperishable, will not fade away. It's kept in heaven for you. So there were all these verses that we looked at. The idea of a believer then has this assurance... This particular verse, which we looked up the word partakers, are those who have partaken. And the partaking of the Holy Spirit, especially with that Ephesians verse, shows you that when you are become a partaker of the Holy Spirit, it's until when? Until the day of redemption. You are sealed until the day of your redemption. Okay, so that's one. Any other words in there that you would find interesting to look up? Okay, Enlightened. Did you look it up? What did you learn? <laughs> okay. And how did and how, what did that do for you when you looked at that and took it back to the text? Did it give you insights to, for interpretation? Okay, so they have the Holy Spirit because they've been in. It's an enlightenment which bears a fruit or produces something within you, a knowledge or an understanding or an insight. Okay, all right. What do you say the of the Holy Spirit? That's true. Right. So, are you feeling more confident then as you look at those? two verses there in um, four and five in particular, that this is in fact believers that is being spoken of. Through some word studies, you were able to come to that, right? What's interesting to me is people who do their word studies on that and still come away saying, I'm not sure. What is it that makes the hesitation in them? Why are they not sure? Is it because of what they're seeing in their word studies and in what they're reading in those two verses, or is it what follows that bothers them? It's what follows that bothers them, yes? The
1: word study I did was on
0: falling away. Very good, me too. Go ahead, tell me what you see about falling away. Wow, very interesting, because I cannot tell you how many of you heard sermons that say that this falling away is apostasy, but apparently apparently, with so. what Carrie has learned in her word study is that it is a different word. It is not the word apostasy. This one is simply a slipping away. Now, one of the things I saw when I looked at it was there was a, as I linked and linked, you know, to all my different things, but there are some who would call this backsliding, but it would it would be as is described actually in chapter five, verses eleven to fourteen. Those who have, and who they've in when they entered into their faith, they were basing their faith starting on those elementary things, and there was probably a measure of growth where they were moving forward. But now they've slipped back to those very basic things, and they're just hovering. Right? That's a backsliding state instead of continuing to progress in maturity and eventually become mature believers they have fallen away does that make better sense now if you think of it in the context of what has been said the flow of thought shows you what he means about falling away falling away in his mind is what has happened in verses 11 to 14 that's what he's talking about falling away because you gotta let your flow of thought right be your interpreter is everyone seeing that at this point Pretty cool, isn't it? Other words mm-hmm. I
1: looked at because that passage was so I kind of camped there is um, the rejected, okay, and that word is out of and it's you're reprobate, you're rejected, you um, you're unfit for the work you're supposed to do, you haven't proved yourself to be as you.
0: Adju- and is that in the word fallen away also?
1: That's No, In rejected when he says they will be
0: rejected. Oh, okay.
1: that you have totally turned your mind around to do a rethinking. And so he's saying, how can you then totally
0: turn your mind around to go the other way? Well, and especially if you're not maturing. Because what is it that brings you to repentance, by the way? by The scripture says it's by the renewing of your mind, right? And if their minds are not being renewed through the scripture, which that they're supposed to be solid food, by it and uh, practice of it, their senses will be trained to discern good and evil. And if they have fallen away from doing that kind of preparatory work in their life, if they've stopped maturing in that manner, how can they be turned to repentance? Because they're not refreshing their mind with truth to to be able to do so, correct? They're staying in that place or that state where they're at, and it's impossible to to uh, bring them to repentance because Number one, they've become hardened in their heart, which is what the author has already brought up earlier, that they have gotten to that state of hard-heartedness. And now, and now they are in this immaturity. They have slipped back to the, lo- the lowest base level of salvation, knowledge, and they're hanging tight there, and they're not maturing, so there's no knowledge coming in to refresh them, to build them up, to move them on. Makes sense, doesn't it? All right. Good. All right. Now, let's move on and look at um, one more thing that I did. Now, I mentioned this to Daryl. I don't know if Daryl had time or not. Did you happen to have time to do any research on the the purpose for burning land? I sent you a little text about it. Probably. Maybe not. Oh, you did. Okay. Well, <laughs> I guess you know what? It becomes so obvious once you your, your mind gets on track. This is the, my whole point is, you know, once you get, um, you start to get on board with the good interpretation, then everything starts falling in place. And then you're like, oh, of course. Oh, yeah, of course. I knew that, right? So he, here's very interesting. This is what I did. Is one of the things that I did since last week that I had not done last week, is I also did some more research. This is another inductive Bible study process that you can apply when you're trying to handle a difficult passage. So in the case of our difficult passage here in um, verses 7 and 8, what subject matter might you want to go and research online just for general purposes, general information? Burning Burning of land. Did anybody do that? Carrie did. Good. Good. Oh, okay. Well then, okay. Did anybody do research online about burning of land? Because if you had, you would have, that also would have been like a slap upside the face and all of a sudden you would have gone, oh, of course. Tell me what you do know about burning of land. What does burning of land do? There you go. It actually becomes fertilizer to the soil, right? Okay. If you've been around the farming community, you know, or, you know like when I was in Minnesota, you would see con- controlled burning going on right. frequently. Yeah. frequently. Was it to destroy the land so that the land was then no good and it was never used again? And so they can it up and it. There you go. Think about that now in the imagery. In Oregon, when I lived there, people left in the summer because they the smoke was so bad. Yeah. <laughs> Poor asthmatic people, they have a hard time in, in cropping communities when it's burn season. Burning, and it's very interesting because I did a research on there's some controversy about burning, but the point is, burning is is a well-known uh, disciplinary tool that a farmer uses to, to prepare his land for the next growing season, for the next crop season particularly if their crops on the land are producing too many thorns and thistles. Okay, Carol. is <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I you know, I th- I actually was thinking of that, Carol, when I was coming in this morning as I was kind of thinking about some of these things that we. Were, I just wanted to review with us about this because I really want to solidify this particular passage. It is the most difficult passage in Scripture. Everyone is on board with that one. If you go in and look at at any of your pastors or commentaries, they all say this is the the most difficult passage in scripture to handle. All of Hebrews is actually because of this starting with this verse and then the ones that follow on then. Consequently, if you don't get the interpretation on this one right, the rest of them continue to be a struggle for you, but I think we will have it handled. But um, when you look at the idea of burning of land. I thought about the forest fires that occur sometimes, right? When a fo- when a f- we all are devastated when we think about a forest fire occurring. But then, what happens after the forest fire is done? Re-regrowth. Regrowth and actually, the vegetation is better. It's green. It's beautiful. The animals thrive because now there's good, nutritious food to eat. One of the one of the sites I went to was uh, grasslands that are used for. Um, the grazing of cattle. And they're saying how they burn every, well, I don't know how often, but they burn regularly because what happens is if they don't burn off the old, it's the land starts to do what they call clumping. And in these areas where they haven't done the burning, uh, the old straw and the old year's growth of grass becomes this hard stubbly stuff. The, the cattle want to eat it, but it gets stuck in their gums and in their teeth and their gullets and whatever and it's uh, actually can be you know medically can be a problem for the cattle but the other thing is is they don't gra- they don't graze on as much green healthy nutritious grass and so they don't gain as much weight and that's financially not beneficial to that farmer so they burn it off allow the fresh green to come up every year they get rid of all the thorns and thistles they said the other thing it does is it eliminates pests Insects that are unbeneficial to the land. Isn't that interesting? Think about that in your life. What is the imagery that you're getting now about this idea of this ground being burned? Are you, are you totally, absolutely don't burn me? <laughs> I'd be going, you know, there's probably some processes in my life occasion where I, I think God maybe does need to bur- burn the, brown, the ground in my, la- in my life. There, you know, even though I won't like it at the moment... But later on, according to Hebrews 12, it's going to produce what? A harvest of righteousness. Think about that phraseology now in light of this verse. The disciplines that God can bring into your life can at the moment not feel good, not feel comfortable, but later they will produce a harvest of righteousness. So when we hit chapter 12, you're going to be able to take 12 and relate it back to what we're looking at here fully. And you're going to fully see the picture, and it's going to be reinforced that our interpretation on this is is a good one. And I love it. Now I look at this, and I'm like, well, this is not, I mean, yeah, this is a stern warning, yes. Uh, And so we certainly want to take it seriously that he is really saying, look, that you can really lose out in a lot of big ways if you do not make the change. It would be far better for you not to have to have your ground burned. You don't want burning. You want to Make the correction yourself. In the case of the flow of thought here, what is the solution for them to make this this change? What must they do? Persevere. Persevere. Be, diligent. be diligent. Diligent in what? What were the things that they're to be diligent in concerning? Okay. Hold it. All right. And in verses uh, chapter 5, verses 11 on, what were they being... Rebuked concerning? They're being sluggish. They were being immature babies. They weren't growing up in their faith, their understanding of the word of God. So if you want to not go through a a time in your life or a season in your life where God is going to have to burn the grasses in your life down to the ground, if you don't want that kind of discipline, then you need to do what you need to do to make the changes now. Don't be so... hardened, that you have fallen away. You're not being renewed by the word of God so that your mind can be transformed and built up in strength so that you can mature, right? Yeah, occasionally we do, we do. Yes, absolutely. Suffering will do that too. And there's all these things have a purpose for us in our spiritual growth this author's main concern though here is that which is within your control there are things that will come in your life that are outside of your control that have nothing to do with you your behavior or your good or bad behavior those are things that God can allow in our lives also for purging right and for strengthening but this particular rebuke here is about something that these believers have deliberately not done that they are responsible to do Yes, Yes. well, you know, it kind of makes me think, though, about the letter to Ephesus, where he says, however, you've left your first love. You've got works, and you are ministering to and loving the people and doing works that honor God, but have you left your first love? What is your first love? God himself, knowing his word, knowing him spending time in his word spending time in prayer those are your first love and those must be done first then comes the work as an outflow of that right and if, they're, if they're going to practice the law they're not going to be the same. Probably going to the yes. they're going to, go to the law, so that they won't be yes yeah how I'll, you know actually it's a good point too in in a personal application for you and I in today how many believers have you ever seen, and you yourself, when you are at a place of disobedience to God, you're not pursuing the things you should be pursuing, and you're resting on your laurels, so to speak, um, how often do you end up finding excuses not to go and participate in fellowship and not be in church and not be engaged in serving God in various ways? Isn't that one of the things that you, you tend to almost start to hide? It's almost like the Adam and Eve syndrome of getting the fig leaves to cover yourself because you're ashamed, and you you feel less of an appetite little by little to want to engage in those things as well. So you get deceived in your mind about it, and you start falling aside and falling away. It's so easy. Satan is very subtle. He loves to lure you out of that. This author then has been moving along in this book. He's talking to them about this newfound faith that is, has been birthed on, Uh, on earth basically and at this time in history but these are believers who have begun to do that falling away part by not being serious about their faith walk and not being disciplined in it and consequently it has caused them then to begin to demonstrate behavior in their life that actually makes them question whether or not they're actually even in faith or not Back in chapter 4, we saw him make a little question mark, saying, well, you know, you need to examine yourself, right? Because, I don't know, there might be some of you who may, may not have even entered into the rest of God. All right, not that, that we're questioning these believers' salvation. They are believers, but we're, we're saying he's looking at their life and saying, I don't know, what I'm observing here makes me wonder, right? Okay, so chapter... Six of Hebrews, by review, we looked at the inductive rules and processes, right? Rules and processes. Okay, our conclusion is about this particular verse is who are we speaking to? Believers. Believers. They are believers. And we see that in chapter six, verses four to six, correct? Specifically, it I, it makes sure that they... What I love is the way that this author actually threw that in there. He didn't have to, but to make sure that you understood that he is speaking to believers, he qualifies it with all these uh, adjectives. They have been enlightened. They have tasted of the heavenly gift. They have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then he says, but now if they have fallen away... And so in this case, who... Now, let's look at the what. Fallen away means what? What is it speaking of? Okay, immaturity. They stopped growing in their faith, in, in knowledge of God's word. Right, So they had fallen away by being immature and by not growing as they were supposed to, right? They are babies, infants, and willfully so. Willfully infants, correct? This is their responsibility. This is not something that has happened to them. It is something that they have allowed to happen, okay? I think that's an important point in here. Okay, now... Um now he follows it then with an intensive teaching on assurance and salvation. Now that's what we did in our homework this week. So this is our review of what we did last week that was a lot of information. I didn't write a lot of that down, but we've got the flow here thinking right? These are speaking of believers they have fallen away, meaning they have they're immature, they stop growing in their knowledge of God and they're willfully, have remained infants. So that's the rebuke. Big rebuke, right? Okay. But he follows the rebuke by saying, I believe better things of you. And then he begins to give them an assurance, right, about their salvation. Very interesting. Now, here's the question I want you to ask about this flow of thought. Why would he jump from giving them this stern rebuke about their immaturity, their willful immaturity, and then start talking about the subject of hope in God and how there's an assurance of it? okay maybe maybe to encourage them that they can't lose their salvation but that there can be discipline but that discipline is not anything more than that it is just discipline possibly unless it was followed up by an intensive piece of positive reinforcement for them okay maybe it's just a flow of thought a pos- that's which would fit his idea of encouragement being his major goal. So he didn't, want to, he didn't want to discourage them by just pointing out their bad stuff, but then he followed it on with something that would encourage them. Okay. That earlier
2: passage was so strong. Yeah. Otherwise,
1: if yeah.
0: you didn't get a good strong dose of positive right after it, okay. you could wind up almost overwhelming everything else. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. What's the point, maybe? OK, possibly.
1: This is a warning of what
0: could happen. Right. Okay, maybe it's just to encourage them so that it won't he's hopefully they're gonna make their own self correction. Okay. This is a group of people that were very familiar with
2: the temple. That was what they were doing in repentance, was continuing to go to the temple, but there was nothing after.
0: After they did it, they went on. Right. Now, we have hope. Now, very interesting to me, but it's, it's like, though, he does switch their attention from themselves to who? To who? To Jesus, to God, to the hope, right? The whole subject that follows that is about that subject of the hope, correct? That's your major key subject in these last verses, correct? Starting in verse... Uh, 8 or 9 there, verse 9 on. The whole, the major thing there is uh, full assurance, surety, confirmation, something that's unchangeable. It's impossible for God to lie concerning it. It gives you a strong encouragement. It's an anchor. It's steadfast. It's sure. What is the it, it, it it's talking about that gives you all of these things? Is that hope concerning that hope? What is the hope? The hope is Jesus. So did you notice there's a, a subject change from you to Jesus. And when we look at Jesus in this passage, and we're going to do it together here in just a second, I want to get a list of the things that you came up with because I want to just note them on the board. I think it's it's such a beautiful picture. Tell me what that switch does for you. What is it actually telling you about him versus you? If you're one like those who have fallen away, and then that's contrast. Remember, contrast make a big point for us. It's a contrast then with Jesus who does what? He's the one who holds on to us because it's done. Yeah. He's the one that is faithful. Have you have you already had that subject matter brought up in this book about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ? That he is faithful as a son over his house, whose house you are if you do hold fast right does that tie in with what we're looking at here is does it seem to you like at this point you can begin to see an actual statement back in chapter three that you are his house he is faithful and you are his house if you also remain faithful basically right here he's saying look those who have fallen away there's going to be a there's going to be a discipline in their life and then he's contrasting he's saying but Who's, who again is now faithful? Jesus is faithful. Isn't that cool? So we, see, we really see a direct parallel with what's already been said in chapter 3 about his faithfulness and how you're to show faithfulness. And now in chapter 5 and 6, he's saying, those of you who are being unfaithful, you need to stop that because Jesus is faithful. And then he gives you your confidence concerning his faithfulness. And he gives you, he spells it out very clearly. So give me some of the point. I know we, we did a word study on this and we were to make lists. You should, were supposed to um, lay everything out and list all the things that you learned concerning uh, the hope. Let me see if I can find my homework pages. I'm in the wrong spot. Okay. So we looked at, we were supposed to have done on uh, that flow of thought, we've already discussed that, then she said look for your contrast and then uh, make a list on hope out of the text, and then do a word study on the word hope, and then I also did the word faith because they, they, to me they blended sort of, the hope and the faith become a merged subject here, right? So what did you learn about the word hope when you did your word study? Jesus is your hope, and what did you learn about hope? What kind of hope is this? Very different from the English idea, huh? Oh, I hope it works out for you. It's not very confident, is it? But in the original language here, what we see is this is a little different nuance to it, doesn't it? It's not a wish. wish. This is something that's well beyond that. And There is actually a verse later on. Does somebody know about the idea about what is faith? It's assurance of things hoped for. Assure, so if you let the text itself define the word, you find that in chapter 11 that he says it's assurance is, that, is is it's the assurance of what you hope for. It's not just a hope, I hope, I hope, I wish, I think maybe, I sure am counting on it, but in this case, it's no, it's a confident and a joyful expectation, Right, it takes it to a totally different level of idea. So let's write that down. Here we have, let's just begin to make our list together on what we learned about, let me find my list, here it is, right here. He says promises about God and why we can count on them. Let's just begin a list. What What? you tell me in those few verses that you all looked at there, what are some things that give you a confidence, a complete confident expectation about Him? It's based on God's unchangeable. Okay, God is unchangeable. God's unchangeable promises. And your verse on that? Six eighteen. Okay, good. So it's based. This kind of hope is based on God's unchangeable promises. And what is in the text here, what does God do to let you know that they're, that they're unchangeable? How does he confirm that? That's right. It's, first of all, it's impo- it is impossible for God to lie. Let's put that on here. Impossible for God to lie. And that is what Verse also 18, okay, impossible for God to lie, and in order to confirm to you that he that He does not lie, not only did he give you his word, what else did he give? He sealed it with an oath, so by two things, number one, his word itself, it's impossible for him to lie, but secondly, his oath, meaning he had a covenant concerning what he was promising, about this hope. Now let's again say who is the hope? Jesus. So I'm going to put a little red cross over my word hope. So we understand that in this context, the hope that's being spoken of here is the hope in Christ Jesus himself. The hope of that sh- uh, salvation which has been promised us through God's promises and his word. And that there's a confident expectation that God will absolutely do it because his, his uh, purposes and his promises are unchangeable. I didn't spell that right word. <laughs> Just pretend it's right. Um, <laughs> and then <laughs> it's impossible for God to lie. He, when he gives his word, it's his word. It's absolute. And he, and then he confirmed it with an oath to absolutely establish that. Because when an oath is given, what does it do? What did the text tell us? It absolutely confirms it. It puts it to rest that, there, that it is an absolute uh, assurance of. Okay. What else do you know about this hope? Okay, it is an anchor of the soul. Let's put that on there. I love that. Now there is some beautiful pictures in that. What verse are you in? Nineteen. An anchor of the soul. Now I heard a a message this last week about uh, the various kinds of anchors that there are uh, out there as imagery-wise. Because again, this would be an image that this author is conveying. These people were fishermen. They are very familiar with the waters. They had um, the Sea of Galilee, which is, you know, very deep, very large, and, and they would do a lot of work out there. But then there's also the Mediterranean Sea, and there's the Aegean Sea, and there's these other seas which are in their, in their realm of their world. What kind of anchors, and what does the idea or the imagery of an anchor do for us? Did anybody do any research on anchors? It holds you in place.
1: <laughs>
0: okay, so the anchor is dropped so that it maintains you in one place. Okay. It does keep you from drifting away, which is exactly what he just said, isn't it? All right. and like we got in the in many places on the
2: Sea of Galilee. Mm hmm.
1: Yes.
0: Yes. You know what was interesting is on this one particular pastor, he was telling me there's actually a difference that in Anchors. Some anchors do, as we've been talking about, just hold you in place so that you can fish or, or that you won't drift away, right? But then there are other anchors also who who that are dropped, which are in the the larger seaworthy kinds of vessels, so that when they're out at sea and if a storm comes and those huge waves which come out in the bigger ocean areas, it it actually uh, causes the the ship to be able to take the waves. And it, sh- it shifts them somehow into the right, because of the drag of it, it makes it so that it takes the wave and it flows with it and it won't t- capsize the ship. I thought that they're was they're interesting. Sea anchors. Sea anchors. The there you go, stabilizers. Very good. So that's another idea I thought that was really cool. So in this case, he's saying about the hope that you have in Jesus Christ that is based on God's promises. God's promises are unchangeable. It's impossible for God to lie. He cut an oath or a covenant in order to confirm it to make you understand that it's sure. And it's an anchor for your soul. Wow. This all follows what we used to think was somebody's losing their salvation. Which they're not. Because the promise that you put your faith in is an anchor for your soul. And God, what he promises is... He confirms. He does. All right. What else did you learn? Sure and steadfast. It is sure and steadfast, and that is in verse nineteen. Okay. Any insights on that besides just that that it's sure and both sure and steadfast? I love that. It follows it up with the, with the focus again back, now, not on just qualifiers that identify it, adjectives that identify it. But it takes you back then to put your face and, and your, your gaze back upon Jesus, who is the one who, why is it sure? Why is it steadfast? Because what did Jesus do for you? Yes, it does. There you go. Because inside the veil, there he, he has stood. And he's gone in as a forerunner for you. The whole purpose of the promises is that you are going to receive salvation from from the penalty of sin. And that salvation is resting on what God has promised you concerning his son. All those, and, and we haven't even begun to touch on all the promises that there are. I mean, we're, we're only looking at a few small visuals in this but as we move through this book it's going to be broadened and broadened and broadened but what he's saying about this is that if you put your eyes on Jesus he is the one who is faithful and and contrast that with what he has just said before he says don't you be the one who falls away Jesus is faithful you be faithful okay I saw a hand up yes Carol yes yes That's right. Absolutely. What a difference there is between our faith system and the faith systems of many others. One of the ones I really liked and what I want to draw your attention to, go back to verse 11. He talks about this hope having what being what? Full assurance, full assurance of hope. Now, what does it say before that? Read the whole verse. So does God want you to realize full assurance so in this text, you can see that God actually says he wants you to have full assurance. He, You are never to have a situation in your life where you're walking through going, I'm not sure if I'm saved or not. He doesn't want you to be in that position. He wants you to have full assurance of your hope. So first of all, it's assurance in the hope, right? But then does he give you any kind of indicators as to how you can also... Confirm in yourself that full assurance. Is there anything that he is, he is requiring of you or asking of you as a result of that confidence that you have in his hope? Diligence, to show diligence. And what is it that he said in the verse previous to that? What is it that, that he wants us to do that's diligent? What kind of activities is he talking about there? The idea of ministering to the saints, showing love, and work, and the kind of work that you're going to do is work that does what? Produces fruit, Produces fruit. brings glory to God. It it brings that. Hold on, let well, me look. Also is, yes. Is Yes. So another qualifier uh, that will give you confidence and assurance, it isn't what gets you saved, but it's what will help you to have a confidence in your assurance, is that you'll be an imitator of what? Be an imitator of those who before you have gone before you, who also have then demonstrated this measure of faith, right? Those who have through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Now, we're going to get in later into chapter 11. We're going to see a lengthy um, a- example of all these various people who've gone before us that give us a demonstration of how they themselves um, had this full confidence, this full assurance in their life, and how it was demonstrated. You have the full assurance, and then you demonstrate the full assurance, Right? You have assurance and demonstrate uh, demonstrate it. The purpose for demonstrating is that God gets the glory, that you not bring him to public shame. Right? Okay, good. Okay, so God desires that each one of you realize the full assurance. You're going to uh, um, do that by diligence and work and love, by being imitators of those who inherit the promises. Uh, it is this this... Assurance is a certain confidence. There is no reason at all for you to doubt. Um, all right, now, if you, but if you doubt, if you're doubting, what is that saying about yourself? If you do have a doubt in your heart, what is, what is it that you're supposed to do? You've, been, you've become immature probably, or you are immature. There's always the potential that someone isn't that doubts, But in this scenario, he's saying, I'm confident you are. But if you're starting to have some doubts about your salvation, and if other people around you are looking at your life and doubting that you have salvation, it's probably because of what? There you go. The life that you're leading and your immaturity in your knowledge of the word of God. Two factors weigh in to whether or not people can look at your life and you yourself can even examine your life. And Jesus says this over and over. We are to examine our lives. That doesn't mean you get saved by the things that you do, but he's saying those are evidences that show whether you're saved or not. So you need to examine your life. Are you being an imitator as these are that he is going to give to us later? Are you an imitator of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises? are you continuing as he's admi- or exhorting them? He's saying, uh, God's not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. So he's saying those are good things. that You should be engaging in those things, but that's not enough if you're not maturing in his word also. And these believers apparently are working for the Lord but not maturing in their faith. So they've put the... The, ho- the cart before the horse, and they need to get the horse in front. The horse is, you need to know your God and know his word, and then the works follow. Okay? I just This assurance of salvation is just so awesome. Um, are there any other points? It's an anchor. It's the one who enters in before the veil. It is Jesus himself. That's where your hope is? He can be counted on to do exactly as he promised. You will be diligent. I wanted to share one thing with you guys because this is really cool. This is going to... Hold on. I'm going to share this because I just love this. If I can make this work correctly. Okay, this is on my Facebook page. It's something I posted this week. This gal was a speaker at a conference, and she's talking about where her strength and her confidence comes from daily walking with the Lord. Um, and so she's apparently had a conversation. I, there's, there's just a clip of this that's put on this particular page. But she is having a conversation with some man in her life, and he's trying to encourage her. And I think it's very much like what's going on here in this particular passage. So I just want to share it with you because I think you guys will love it. At the end, we're going to be going. Stop
2: me from taking platforms and ministering to women. I will say this until the day that I die, reminding myself as I do when I am quietly alone and I look myself in the mirror and say girl who's your daddy you know what I tell myself I tell myself he is the first and the last the beginning and the end he's the keeper of creation and the creator of all he's the architect of the universe and the manager of all time he always was always is always will be unmoved unchanged undefeated and never undone he was bruised but brought healing he was pierced but ease pain he was persecuted but brought freedom he was dead and brings life he has risen to bring power and he reigns to bring peace. The world can't understand him. Armies can't defeat him. Schools can't explain him and leaders they can't ignore him. Herod couldn't kill him. Nero couldn't crush him. The new age cannot replace him and Oprah cannot explain him away. She can't. She can't do it. You remind yourself that he is light, he is love, he is longevity, and he is the Lord. He is goodness and kindness and faithfulness, and he is God. He is holy and righteous and powerful and pure. His ways are right, his word eternal, his will unchanging, and his mind is on us. He's our savior, our guide, our peace, our joy, our comfort, our Lord, and he rules our lives. I serve Him because His bond is love, His yoke is easy, His burden is light, and His goal for us is abundant life. I follow Him because He's the wisdom of the wise, the power of the powerful, the ancient of days, the ruler of rulers, the leader of all leaders. His goal is a relationship with me. He'll never leave you, never forsake you, never mislead you, never forget you, never overlook you, and never cancel your appointment in His appointment book.
0: All right, I had to share that because I thought that lady knows about assurance, doesn't she? Because her focus is not on what she's doing, but on who he is. And that, I believe, is what this author has done for us. He makes this shift, and although we can get lost in the technicality of lining up, well, his word is this and this and this and this, yes, but what does it really mean? It means that if your focus is upon loving and knowing your God, You are going to mature in your faith. You are not going to remain infants. You are not going to be babies. And you're not going to become laxadaisy and rest back on your laurels, thinking you've come far enough. You are going to have a passion for God because the more you get to know him, the more confident you are in who he is and what he has promised. They are absolute truths that are steadfast, and it's a truth which has entered within the veil as a forerunner for us. So Jesus is the one that we set our focus on. He's, he is faithful. You be faithful. He can absolutely be counted on. And shouldn't you reflect that in your faithfulness to him as well? It should be a natural outflow of our love and respect and honor for who he is. I loved it. Anyway, I thought that was quite appropriate at the time. See the things you miss when you don't go on my Facebook page? (laughs) (laughs) So she's posted on there. If you want to go snatch her and put them on your page too, you can do that. Okay, so that takes care of last week's work, uh, or last chapter's work. That takes us through chapter six. Do you feel real confident now about chapter six? Do you feel like, okay, I think I've, I've got an understanding of this that I feel really sure? I'm not wrestling still with what's being said in there or who it's being said about? Are you feeling good at this point? Yes, I am. So I I pray that you are and Based on what we have drawn in our conclusions at this point, we're going to stand on that and upon that flow of thought and those doctrinal truths that we've laid down, we're holding fast on those to move forward into the rest of this book. So when we hit the rest of these other issues that are going to come up, there's going to be additional problem statements that are going to be made. When we hit them, we're going to handle them in the same way. And now you have a chart, because I gave it to you this past week, that shows you some of the steps that you can take inductively, some of those processes that you can apply to go to find sound interpretation. And you can add to that list if you want to do research sometimes even on the visuals that are given to you. Things like the boat that we were given when we looked at the assurance of our salvation being an anchor, that's a great one to go research and study just to see better what it is that it's speaking about when it talks about he is an anchor for the soul. What I did is I went and researched the burning of ground. And what I came to find out is this is not to destroy the ground. It's to prepare the ground for future uh, growing crop seasons. It's to fertilize. It's to rid it of pests. It's to get rid of those thorns and thistles and to make it useful in the hand of God. And when he rains upon you in the future, then you will be prepared to actually produce good vegetation. Isn't that awesome to know? All right. So that's chapter 6. Now we're ready to go into 7. We'll do as much as we have time to do, but know this, you're going to go on next week. You're going to continue to work in chapter 7. She asked you in the last two days of our homework for this week to just simply do your observations uh, in in Hebrews 7. So we're going to do just some real preliminary things. Let's start again with keywords. So we all identify what kind of keywords. What do keywords do for us? What do they bring to light for us to understand or to see? Subject matters. So by words that are repeated the most or words that seem to be uh, most significant are those things which the author is bringing up. And how do they relate then to the author's overall message? Should they relate to the overall message? Absolutely. He only brings up a subject in order to prove a point or to elaborate on a point, right? So if he is trying to exhort them in their faith walk, he's telling them they have been babies and he wants them to press on into maturity. He, back in chapter 5, made a pause and said, look, I can't even begin to tell you all that I want to tell you about this order of Melchizedek because you're babies. You haven't matured. You should have by now been able to handle this information about about how Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek, but because you did not mature, you did not discipline yourself, you remained back in those real elementary things. It's gonna be hard for me to explain this. I like the fact that he prefaced it with that, but then he goes on to tell them. So he challenges them with new insight. Now, they may have initially received this information from this author and go, oh, I'm not so sure about that. They're gonna to have to go back and do what? What, what did the Bereans do when Paul gave them new information? They to check it out. Go and check it out to see if what he was saying was true. And so that's what this author is doing for you and me as well. He's saying, okay, I'm going to go on now. I'm going to go back to our subject of, of uh, Melchizedek and Jesus being um, anointed and appointed as um, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Why, why was it a problem for Jesus to become a priest? Why would that be a challenge for an immature believer at this, this point to handle? He was in the wrong tribe, wasn't he? And so because of that, he, this author knew that when he told them that Jesus was now their great high priest, they were going to have a problem with this. He knew that. So he stops where he's at and he's saying, look, I know you guys are babies because you haven't grown up. And it's going to be hard to explain this because, you know, you haven't grown like you should. He rebukes them. Then he comes back to the subject and says, doesn't matter. I'm still, I'm going, to, I'm going to stand on this. I'm going to explain this truth to you. I'm going to show you this imagery that God gave to you through this particular point about G, who Jesus is. And what I love about this is how much in this book are we seeing that this author is explaining old imagery and giving it a new understanding for them. Is he doing that over and over and over? We've already looked at a couple of things. We looked at Sabbath, the Sabbath day as an imagery. We looked at um, the land itself, entering into the land. Again, another imagery that was given. But now he brings them forward, and he talks about how this is actually the real rest that God wanted them to have is what? faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is actually the real rest who was an accomplished work from before the foundation of the world he said, right? So, although I gave you the land and I gave you the Sabbath as pictures that wasn't the real rest that God wants you to enter. He wants you to really enter is into is Jesus, the work finished from before the foundation of the world. So, that's a beginning place and from there onward, we get over and over and over more images that are given to us that were established by God from, from ages past. And he's now going to bring them into full maturity on their insights concerning these old images. And I want you to keep that in mind as you go through this, because it's really exciting. There are so many, quote, types and images in the scripture that, that God has given to teach us and to teach his people Israel so that when their Christ would come, they would recognize him, and they would see the full um, spiritual truth about that physical imagery that was given to them. Um, I listened to a pastor, another pastor this week, and I am going to send a link out for you guys to listen to. Now, I don't know much more about him beyond this one lesson, but he was on site in Israel, and he was doing a lesson about this order of Melchizedek, and it's Awesome. So after you do your homework this week, I, I'm going to send the link out, and I want you to get it, if you get a chance, go and listen. He talks like 100 miles an hour because he's on a time schedule. You know, they're at the Dead Sea, though. They're at the, I mean, they're at the Jordan, the Jordan River, and he's going to give you some really cool insights, really cool ones. I, I, I think you're going to enjoy it a lot. Okay, so now, keywords. Let's go back and say, keywords give us Subjects and the subjects help us to understand the author's message at this point. So, what have we got for keywords here? Melchizedek. We've got the word Melchizedek, the name Melchizedek. I'm just going to put Mel because it's easier to spell. Okay, forever. forever. I love it. Now, that is a reference of time. Reference of time. That would be one more point that you need to do. So, the word forever. And it becomes a key word as well because it's repeated over and over and over, right? How, and for I'm just going to give this because I have them here. 17, 21, 24, and 28 are places where you see the word forever. But there are also some synonyms to forever. Tell me some of the other synonyms. Okay, Perpetual. You guys did a good job on your homework okay perpetually permanently always and I like it He, he always lives uh, 25 indestructible I don't know if that's a time reference though that's not it that that goes into the always lives as a sub, sub subject but it's not a time reference okay so now let's go back to key other keywords so these are all your time references This may not be all of them, but it's a lot of them. The word priest. And not just priest, but there's another one that's a little more elaborate. The priesthood and specifically the Levitical priesthood. Okay, um and we'll get to the comparisons in a second, but yes. Okay, better. Greater. Okay. Yes, ma'am, Abraham definitely becomes one of the keywords at least in one section, and then he gets dropped. But what does that tell you? If you see a keyword that comes up in a section, and then you don't see it mentioned again, and you move into a next section, and you see other keywords, what does it tell you about that section where where a word is repeated a lot, like Abraham, Abraham, Abraham? It's a topic of of the paragraph, right? So it's going to show you a paragraph division by looking at it in that way. So you're going to see. What do you learn, then, about Abraham? Where does he begin and end in chapter 7? Okay, it actually goes all the way to 10, but yes. So you, so you see then that in the beginning, verses 1 to 10 has a lot to do with Abraham, and so you're going to keep that in mind when you start looking at titling things, right? All right, so you got Abraham. What else do you have? Law. law. Meaning the law, right? I marked it with a stone tablets. So that's my key word for the law. Oath. Perfection. Okay. Say it again tenth or tithe it comes up as a point that that makes a point for him about the fact that someone was either lesser or greater correct so you could have marked it I did actually mark it on my page but I didn't then make a list on it because it was like this much information right but the point that the tenth is given is is a significant point so you'd want to make sure it gets into one of your lists I think you're right about that good idea And also God, right? Because He's in there, the Father. There's a point of when they talk about, you know, the purpose of the poem is the better than,
1: there is perfect and indestructible life. Mm hmm. But you don't get any better
0: than that. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Okay, so when you make your list on on, uh, the subjects, of Jesus and Melchizedek and the Levitical priesthood and you start making all those comparisons, all those points are going to come up and you're going to begin to see what the author's purpose is in showing you about Jesus and what his relationship is to the, to the order of Melchizedek. What, how is he linked to the order of Melchizedek? What is the quality about the order of Melchizedek that makes Jesus identify in that order? according to the, his, the order of Melchizedek, right? All right. The tithing in the 10th, we just mentioned that. That would be another one. Okay. Genealogy, hmm. Yeah, it's one of the points when he talks about um, Melchizedek himself. Yeah, you could put that on there. Mhm. If you know how to spell it, you could. <laughs> okay, I had actually didn't put that one on my list, but it definitely is is important. There that the genealogy, the the 10% or 10th the tithe you could put, you could add those. They become as you, you will see when you make your list, they become less important, but they may be things that you noticed and wanted to mark. The thing about marking keywords is if you make a, mark a keyword, you're supposed to make a list on it, right? And then by making your list, you begin to see how significant that particular point really is or isn't. And sometimes the point is only brought up like the idea of the 10th in order to support another more major point subject that has actually already been established. So okay, so it's a process and it's a good process. Okay. So that gives us keywords. We see we see references of time seem to be Come very important and very significant in this particular passage. They actually become keywords, but they are also specifically references of time. And one of the things you're supposed to do when you do an observation worksheet is mark your references of time. I just put a little clock on top of them, just like I did up here for you, so that you see the clocks. And when you do that, what did you see on your sheet when you marked your references of time? Where does it start and where does it end? Yeah, it starts all the way, it really starts right away at the very beginning of chapter seven, and it goes all the way to to the very last verse, doesn't it? And you see clocks and clocks and clocks and clocks all over your page, correct? So that is an indicator to you of what concerning the, the idea of these references of time? How important are they in the subject matter? They obviously are an important point concerning the subject matter. What is the major subject in here? Pardon Jesus. of course <laughs> Jesus and concerning Jesus what we know the book theme is is that Jesus is better than is what this author is doing consistently how what is Jesus better than in this particular chapter okay all right so Jesus is um, is a is a priest in this particular but he's a better than priest better than the order of Melchizedek. But that's very interesting if you're thinking about the audience you're you're speaking to, right? Did you notice that? Because for for this particular audience, the priesthood that matters to them is what? The Le- Levitical order, right? So he has to weave these two together in order to, to show something better than in a superiority of something, right? In the end, what do we see about the Melchizedek order compared to the Levitical order? It's actually a superior order, isn't it? I loved the imagery that's given in here where he talks about Abraham and how ultimately when the tithe is given, when the blessing is given, um, the... The, that Melchizedek is the one who becomes the greater and the better, and that Abraham is the one basically that bows down and receives that blessing from Melchizedek. And in doing so, what has happened concerning the Levitical priests? Through that imagery, what, what has happened? The Levites, who this audience has highly exalted in their mind, those Levites have actually bowed down underneath the Melchizedek order of priesthood because of them being where? In the loins of Abraham at the time that Abraham gave him the tenth and then he blessed Abraham. So that's a beautiful picture there. Mm-hmm. Complicated. also, and it actually introduces a bit of a subject that's going to be brought up shortly thereafter, too, where he's going to talk about the covenant and how these various covenants compare to one another and which one is greater than the other. All right, excellent, or better than, exactly, that's better than. All right, so we've got comparisons. Let's look at some contrasts in here. Let's do the theme first of all. The theme, I forgot to write it up here. Jesus is, how did you title it? A better high priest. And I like the way you all added in forever, because it seems like that is an important point in this particular passage, or this particular uh, Paragraph or chapter, I should say, chapter 7. Okay, so he's better. Jesus is a better high priest forever, better than the Levitical priesthood, right? All right. What do you see in um, contrasts? What kind of contrast did you note on your observation worksheets? Okay, so the contrast was Jesus is not... Okay, Jesus becomes priest. These are long. Not on basis of a physical requirement. Now comes the but. (laughs) Um, But according to... The power of what? An indestructible. Okay, according to the power of an indestructible. Okay, so that's contracting verse sixteen, right? Those are in verse sixteen. So concerning your subject matter of that Jesus is a better high priest forever, he became priest not on the basis of a physical requirement. In other words, he didn't come through the law, through the Levitical system, through the Levite bloodline, but he became this high priest because it's according to the order of Melchizedek. He became it based on the, uh, according to the power of an indestructible life. Who has an indestructible life? Jesus has the indestructible life. And on that basis, he becomes priest. The indestructible life quality is what makes him high priest. Okay, that's what qualified him. All right, very good. It's a good, important point to start out with for next week's homework so that you pick up on all the right points. Okay? Okay, so we have Melchizedek. It says of him that he lives on lives on in verse 8, right? But the Levites are mortal in verse also 8, correct? Is that the one you were pointing? Is that the one you were talking about? Well, it's, it's just kind of there, but yeah. Okay, is there another one that you, another verse that is more declarative than that one that's uh, well, it wasn't a single verse, oh you were taking a general I actually used a specific verse to make that point because you're right it's taught through the whole area there that that the Levites they, they can't go on forever they they because of death they have to I mean I think there's a word death is used in there Okay, so in that case, it's a different contrast, though. This is talking about the living on forever, and the, and the Levites were mortal. So there's a contrast between Melchizedek and the Levites. Now you're saying about Jesus, what is the comparison? Uh, well, it's really, um, the
2: perfection was through the Levitical priesthood. What further need was there for another
0: priesthood? So, um... Okay, so Levitical priesthood is compared to um another another priesthood and that's in verse which one craig give me the 11 okay so there's a contrast that's compared the levitical priesthood is going to be contrasted with another priesthood. And what you and I know, if we keep moving, is speaking about the priesthood of Jesus that will come up later. So, another priesthood, you could put it, just put a cross on there if you want to clarify it in your thinking. Okay, and that Better Hope verse is, uh, which one? 19, right? And it's contrasted, the, uh, setting aside, is that what you were saying, Susan? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's what I did too. Uh, setting aside a former commandment. Former commandment. And that's in verse 18. Where was the law made nothing perfect? Where, what verse is that? Also in 19. Okay, so 19 and then 18 and 19. So you can get a double contrast going on there, both pretty much saying the same thing. The law made nothing perfect. There's a better hope. There was a setting aside of that former commandment, which is the, speaking of the law, for a better hope. So both of those, in both ways, those would be a good contrast to note to yourself. Okay, any others? <coughs> He's also referred to as holy, and um, how, I mean it goes on and on, doesn't it? it talks about um, I don't think I've got it all in this one. Hold on, I got to find my other sheet here. How it describes him. Um, what verse are you in? 26. Okay, here it is. Twenty-six. For it is fitting for us to have us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So that's in verse 26. I'm just going to put holy dot, 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 verse 26. Jesus made perfect and he's holy versus the Levitical priests who have to offer sacrifices for their own sins. And what verse was that? 27, okay. So... yeah it's an infinity thing once for all wouldn't you say maybe it's kind of implies infinity right because it's done and then it and it's a perpetual or an ongoing thing once for all maybe yeah you could I don't know if I did but yeah uh continues on where do you see that verse that one Yeah, I I didn't but you could. Once for all versus daily. There you go. Well, that'll work. time in sense it's also kind of I know, me too. You will do that. You will run out of room when you start looking at these contrasts. Uh, so once for all was was uh in 27 and it's contrasts with what's done daily versus what's d- done daily once he does for all. An oath that That's a good one. One was made without an oath. This is the Levitical priesthood. By the way, it's not talking about they didn't go into the law oath, but it's saying that the Levitical priesthood itself, when Jesus um, instituted it, he simply called Aaron out and said, go do this for Aaron. There was no oath made in the establishing of that part. And if you you remember your homework, we went back and we did Leviticus 8. We did um, Exodus 28 and 29, I think it was, something like that. It's vague. But anyway, those were the verses that was last week or the week before, and we did those verses, and we looked at how that Levitical priesthood was actually instituted, how God set apart Aaron. He says, set apart Aaron for yourselves and do this and do this and do this, right? Well, that was done without an oath. That was simply an institution by God's word. God said, this is who I'm picking, this is who will be. And when the others rose up against that, remember, to challenge it, God opened the earth and swallowed them whole, right? Do you remember that? Okay, so there's that, and it's in contrast, however, to this particular priest, who is Jesus. He was instituted um, to be a priest according to an oath, the promises of God, right? Right? And we see an establishment of it also or a, uh, or a uh, confirming of it because then he quotes a scripture, doesn't he? Again, I would mark in a significant way those scripture verses that are quotes. Just I likely cover, color all mine in with a blue or a gold or something just to make them kind of pop off the page. And I can see right where my quotes are from Old Testament. And when you see that, what you're seeing is that God has stated it in his word through Someone, in this case, it was a Psalm 110, David, and he says, he is a priest forever. How? How did he, God n- note him to be as a priest forever? The Lord. The Lord and he uh, that's right. And he is according to the order of? Yes. Melchizedek. Okay. Now, when I went back and looked at that Psalm 110, they knew that what was being quoted there or spoken of was that coming Messiah. So the, when he say, says, the Lord says of my Lord, when you go back and look at your commentaries and see what the, the Hebrew mind was was reading and thinking, they understand that to be a, a, a um, messianic uh, prophecy of the coming Messiah, the Savior. So it's about the Messiah. He will be a priest forever. When the Messiah comes, whoever he is, The Jews in the Old Testament didn't know for sure. They knew a lot of clues about who he would be, but until he was there, they didn't know. But they were saying, when that Messiah comes, he will be a priest forever. And that was given with an oath. And so that's really cool to note because they should have been aware of it, that when this this Messiah comes, whoever he is, he's going to be a priest, right? That should have been a conflict in their mind, however, knowing he was also going to be what? King. <laughs> and the kings come from which tribe? Judah. So th- there's another contrast, the tribe of Judah versus the tribe of Levi. Levi. Right. There's another point that can be brought out. All right. So those are good. Well, we're we've done a lot here. We haven't gotten through everything. I was gonna go through we just don't have time. Um, you wanna make lists on Melchizedek? Did y'all do that? Yay. You're gonna be real helpful. Uh, happy about that because next week's homework you're going to use a lot of that same information you just do a cut and paste on your thing if you've got it on your computer otherwise just pull your list out and you can follow along to see what you saw before versus what you're going to be seeing this week but she's going to have you uh, make some comparison of the three priests who and priesthoods that are identified here Melchizedek Levitical and Jesus the new priest and you're going to do some comparing on those priesthoods he was um, also, in the case of Melchizedek, I made a very short list about he, he was made like the Son of God, and how, what is the likeness of the Son of God? How, what are the qualifiers in here? Okay, look in verse 3 of, of your thing. Okay, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having... Neither beginning of days nor end of lives. Now, when he says in verse 3 that he, about his priesthood, what quality does he actually bring up as this significant point? Perpetually. So what you see then is, although it does talk about without father, without mother, without genealogy, but the real emphasis here on it throughout the whole chapter is on the fact that it's a perpetual priesthood and that because this particular priest lives on forever because he has no genealogy and we have no record of him in the mind of a Jew he had no beginning and no end because what did the Jews do concerning their genealogy what did the Jewish nation establish and do per- without fail they kept records of who was born with which family, and tribe they come from. And as a matter of fact, when they came back on the land after having been out of the land, what did they have to produce? Documents. Documents, Documents to prove who, which line and which family they came to. If they didn't belong to the tribe which pertained to the temple, for instance, they weren't allowed to go in and serve at the temple. Even if they said, oh, i, I really Levite. I'm a Levite. Prove it. And if they couldn't prove it, they didn't get to, right? So it was that essential. Well, in this particular um, subject that's given to us here in chapter 7, the point that's being brought out is this Melchizedek had no lineage. Because why? Hadn't been established yet. They weren't on the land as a nation, and these kinds of, of documents weren't even being kept yet. They weren't broken up according to the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes weren't even in existence yet. They were still in the loins of Abraham, right? So they didn't have that. But he says, he, however, this Melchizedek, because there is no record in the mind of a Jew, he goes on forever, perpetually. So it's that quality that's being brought out. And I just want you to know that before you go for next week's homework, that that's the one that you need to bring up. You need to particularly note all your references of time, and how Jesus is called this priest. He remains a priest. That, that Melchizedek remains a priest forever, perpetually in verse 3, and that's how Jesus then becomes according to the order of Melchizedek. It's a perpetual priesthood. That's the quality of the priesthood that you're wanting to note, okay? Okay, well, that lays the the foundation for next week.